This is Terry Mattingly of Get Religion. If you like our Get Religion podcast with Issues Etc. and all the other work we do, please help us carry on by making a year-end tax-deductible gift. You can make a secure donation at getreligion.org using a charge card or any other form of pledge you want to make. Thanks for listening, and thanks for following Get Religion. Please help us keep doing the work that we do. This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. Here is a headline from NBC. No conclusions drawn in this headline, of course. How the Supreme Court may help religious schools discriminate against students. It's a story about a case that the Supreme Court heard oral arguments for today. How is the rest of the media coverage of this religious freedom case going? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Is this just another case of centering on the question of who gets to define what religious is and what religious is not? I would call that what a religion is and what a religion is not. That's one of the central questions in years of church-state debates about a host of subjects. But we can, we can turn it around in this case specifically by looking at what the main law does that's being tested by the Supreme Court at this point. There are quite a few students, it appears, in Maine who live in remote areas, or they live in areas where they do not have adequate options when it comes to public schools. So the state created a program, kind of a voucher program, in which students could choose to go to private schools. And what you have here is people saying, well, what kind of private schools are eligible for these funds? Can a student go to a religious school? And the key thing is that Maine has decided that the state government of Maine gets to decide what is a religion school and what isn't a religion school or religious school. And that's a very problematic situation. And I guarantee you that was a major part of the debates today at the Supreme Court because that's something that people have been arguing about for a long time. And I would say that the key question, a way to frame this, goes back to a term you've heard me use through the years, and that was the equal access laws that were passed during the Clinton years, approximately the same time as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Back during that kind of (laughs) glorious brief period of time when a lot of people on the left and a lot of people on the right seemed to agree on a lot of things when it came to the First Amendment and religious liberty. But what the Equal Access Laws said is that if the state decides to use tax dollars or to give a tax exemption, which is basically the same thing, to a nonprofit 
it can't discriminate on the basis of religion. That if you have a religious nonprofit and a secular nonprofit who are doing, say, daycare work, you couldn't offer state aid to one and not the other. You couldn't say, in effect, religion is a uniquely dangerous form of free speech. It's okay to say the following things in a daycare or a school. It's not okay to say religious things in a daycare or a school. Now, what's kind of looming here, if you know anything at all about New England, is New England is a region with many historic boarding schools for the super rich, and many of them have religious roots. And kind of what I see looming in the background, and sure enough, it shows up in a quote from Justice Roberts in one of the earliest stories that have come out of this after today's debates. We don't have a lot of the actual coverage of today. What we have is coverage going into it in which we have how different news organizations chose to frame these issues. It sounds like, according to Maine, that if, let's say, an Episcopal or a Congregational, United Church of Christ, a liberal school existed, and that school didn't teach anything that violated what the state government thought was proper. Let's say that it took the state government's approach to gay and lesbian issues, for example, which the Episcopal Church would certainly do. That it would be okay, that form of religion would be okay because it would echo the views of the state. Meanwhile, a Orthodox Jewish school or a traditional Catholic school, which took a different approach to LGBTQ issues, would not be eligible because its views would clash with what the state has defined are acceptable religious doctrines. Now, note the way I'm wording that. I'm wording it in terms of religion on both sides. And sure enough, from an early story, this one happens to be at Fox News, here's a news report that quotes the Chief Justice. You're discriminating among religions based on their beliefs, Chief Justice John Roberts said, pointing to how if one religion taught the same way as a public school, but a different religion taught differently, the first would be able to participate in the program, but the other would not. Back to the Roberts quote. So it is the beliefs of the two religions that determines whether or not the schools are going to get the funds. And we have said that is the most basic violation of the First Amendment religion clauses for the government to draw distinctions between religions based on their doctrine. In other words, Robert is saying that the court doesn't want people saying the following is an acceptable, worthy religion in the view of the state, and the following doctrines are unworthy and unacceptable to the state. Roberts is saying that that defines what is an acceptable state religion, which is exactly what's forbidden in the First Amendment. So under the old Equal Access Laws, if you rejected one form of nonprofit private activity, you had to reject the other 
slash religious form of nonprofit private activity. Do you see the central point I'm making there? So what we're looking for in the coverage is kind of, does that seem to be an issue that's even discussed in the coverage that we'll be seeing in the days ahead? How do you set this in the context of the broader media narrative regarding the current makeup of the Supreme Court? There's kind of a general media panic that this court now comprised arguably of a majority of conservative justices is going to dismantle the progressive agenda, at least at the level of lawmaking? Well, the issue is going to be whether the coverage actually wrestles with what the court says and what the main law says, or does it strictly go with the position you can't use any tax dollars to support religion, period? If you keep saying that, I mean, that's a valid question, and people have been arguing about it for years, but that's not listening to the court or to apparently the main law, which seems to say some religious doctrines are acceptable to the state and thus can be funded, while there are other doctrines that are unacceptable to the state and thus they can't be funded. Let me put this to you with a test. I've been filtering through some stuff, and I... I want to I know this puts you on the spot but which of the following paragraphs do you think comes from National Public Radio and which comes from the church state separation group on the left Americans United Okay you ready Yes okay Here comes quote number 1 The principle of church state separation quote has never been understood as requiring the government to fund religious education but several justices seem prepared to reinterpret it to mandate exactly that. The same justices also seem to ignore the hypocrisy of calling Maine's program discriminatory for requiring religious neutrality, while at the same time forcing the state to fund private religious schools that discriminate against LGBTQ, non-Christian, and other students, families, and employees. Okay, that's paragraph number one. Paragraph number two sounds like this. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments Wednesday in a case that will equal greatly expand state aid to religious schools. On one side are proponents of the school choice movement, and on the other, the state of Maine, which is defending the way it, that it provides what it calls a public education for children. In recent years, the Supreme Court's conservative majority has whittled and sometimes hacked away at the Constitution's wall of the separation of church and state. This has nowhere been more apparent than in cases dealing with religious schools. Well, because you contrasted those two, in particular National Public Radio, which I'm a daily morning listener to National Public Radio, I'm stumped. I think both of them could have come from National Public Radio. I suspect the second one did, but I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a little newsier worded, so you got that right. The second quote was from NPR, and the first was from one of the most powerful church-state lobby groups on the cultural and academic and legal left. But the key there being that sometimes hacked away at the Constitution's wall of separation between church and state, the way people in conservative church-state groups would word it is that the court is trying, once again, to decide who gets to define 
what is religion and what isn't, that that has become one of the central questions. And at the heart of it all are some questions that have been going on for a long time about the very unique role that public schools play in our nation. And in particular, the fact that the government states can levy taxes on people whose beliefs on crucial cultural, moral, social, religious issues clash with the public schools, that the state has the power to do that. And some people would say that means the state has the power to collect taxes to enforce a particular approach to religion, culture, and morality. Whereas meanwhile, the state is not allowing, although there's some interesting exceptions we can discuss, the state isn't allowing tax dollars to go to religious schools, left or right, until this main thing, perhaps, that preach religious doctrines. Now, what the court is underlining, and I can't stress this for our listeners too much, in the coverage, look for the court attempting to say, why can we fund religious points of view that the state endorses while refusing to fund religious points of view that the state or a government rejects? Isn't that the establishment of a state religion? And establishment of a religious point of view is, of course, at the heart of the First Amendment. You did excellent on the test. Where shall we go next? Well, I'm curious about this, and this kind of is just a more nuts and bolts journalism question regarding the U.S. Supreme Court and its hearings. It has only been since 2006 that the U.S. Supreme Court has provided kind of same-day transcripts yeah. of its oral argument in any given case. And then lately, apparently, through organizations like C-SPAN, same-day audio Oh, yeah. this. And it does give us a, a much more inside view. You still can't take a camera in there, but you can be there in every virtual sense. Yeah. How has that changed the more first draft reporting of the Supreme Court? Because I'm intrigued by headlines like Supreme Court hints at or Supreme Court seems yeah. to be saying same things like that. Well, first of all, people have to be very careful. For example, that piece that you read from the headline from NBC, I just searched for that headline and I couldn't find that. It's been changed in, since Aha. I quoted it, yes. Okay, thank you. But once again, our listeners really have to look at the fact NBC had several pieces up, and one of them, and it looked just like the news piece, was actually an opinion piece written by a law professor. And as you know, for years, you and I have been discussing the fact that many Americans, especially in an online setting, and when people start firing URLs around in social media, a lot of Americans have zero ability to tell commentary from news stories. So that's really going to be important tomorrow. As we saw in the coverage of the debates about abortion and the Mississippi law. And I obviously, as someone who loves direct quotes, 
I love having the direct transcripts handed to me as a reporter. That should make it extremely easy to not have to say hints at, but instead be able to go in and give readers and listeners exact quotes to the degree that your journalism format allows you the space to do so. What I think is fascinating is if you looked at the coverage of the abortion case to flashback, and this school's case is very similar, the cultural lines are remarkably similar, I would argue that having these exact quotes hasn't actually changed the coverage all that much because many publications, far too many publications, already have templates in their mind about what's going on. And in that case, there are religious right groups, and then there are church-state experts, and nobody notices that the religious right groups are actually church-state legal firms that have been arguing in front of the Supreme Court and have the exact kind of academic credentials and legal credentials as the liberal group that then is quoted as a church-state expert. Well, you have left liberal church-state experts and you have right conservative church-state experts. They're usually graduates from the same law schools. They just disagree. And I would argue that we need to make sure that listeners aren't given framed biased descriptions of who these people are. Then the same thing happens when you're talking about justices. I saw the other day someone was saying, don't forget, three new members of this court were appointed by a president who didn't get a majority vote. And thus they are, you know, they have less validity. That writer didn't point out that Bill Clinton didn't have a majority vote either and named a Supreme Court justice. How you pick and choose your facts in framing these things is very important and tells you a lot about the viewpoints of the editorial pages of some of these publications. And I'm old enough to remember when we believed, speaking of church and state, we used to refer to the editorial pages in the newsroom as church and state, and that there was supposed to be a wall separating the state, which was the newsroom, from the church, which was the editorial pages. <laughs> and there certainly are cracks and fissures and chasms in those walls at this point at many American news organizations. The reason I bring up the transcripts and the recordings of the actual oral argument is you've said it before, and I, I hope it was you that said it, I'm pretty sure it is, that the newsrooms aren't going to distinguish between news and opinion anymore. They found out that it's far more profitable and click-worthy and paywall-worthy to mix the two as much as possible. So the consumer's going to have to make the distinction. And I think if we, the consumer just says, well, you know, I'm going to read the transcript for myself and compare it to the headlines that I read. What are your thoughts there? Well, first of all, I would hesitate to say all newsrooms. I definitely think there are still newsrooms that are trying to kind of keep the old faith of the separation of editorial pages 
and newsrooms. So I, I want to go ahead and point out to listeners that there are people that are still trying. What I would say is that they're being tempted, primarily tempted in the world of Twitter and other social media forms to let that wall break down. And some people would say you're no longer hiring journalists, you're hiring social media brands. You're hiring people who bring a vast audience to them. And and let's let's deal with friends of ours. I mean, both of us are, have been friends for years before she hit the national scene with Molly Ziegler Hemingway. It's very apparent that Fox, in the context of commentary shows, wants Molly to be able to bring with her this large audience that she has developed online. Well, there are people on the more liberal side of things that are doing the exact same thing, and their views end up being quoted, or their op-ed page pieces end up being promoted on news sites with very little distinction. I had a, a brief chance years ago to speak. I won't name the news organization, but I was asked to come in and speak at a nationally a national newsroom, a truly national newsroom, connected to a vast number of newspapers. And we were having a discussion of this problem. And I suggested that at the very least, in addition to putting opinion or analysis on the top of one story or feature and news on top of another, I suggested that they actually develop visual clues that they should frame analysis piece headlines. If you're going to put them all on the front of your website, frame the analysis pieces in a blue box or frame the headline in a blue box or put a blue box around the whole thing and then put the word commentary in blue. And when you were dealing with hard news, put a red box or a black box or something different to where people could look at a page and these things would jump out to their eyes that one product is one thing and one product is another. But of course then what happens, and gosh, this the Babylon Bee, all of the controversies about its satire have usually occurred when people yank something out of the Babylon Bee and start firing it onto their Facebook page with no indication that this is satire. When the Babylon Bee, of course, has satire at the top, satire at the bottom, and America's most popular satirical publication, like in a banner. When you start chopping these things up and firing them into social media, how in the world are people supposed to tell the difference when you're not even getting some of the labels and safety devices that good newsrooms are using? So I hear you, yet at the same time, I know from decades of data that the American people are growing less and less likely to read multiple sources or to read anything at all. And instead, they're going to their talk radio commentary shows on evening television and everything else and soaking up the views of their favorite commentators as if they were a hard news report. 
I mean, and as much as I value commentary and and choose to read quite a bit of it on both the left and the right, that's not normal in American life these days. We live in our little concrete silos, and we let in the views that automatically agree with what we think, and that's a tragedy in American life that is largely producing the divisions we see in our culture today, which are only getting worse and worse. I read a term that I had never seen before today in Vanity Fair and was discussing the exodus of Chris Cuomo from CNN, and it called his brand of journalism perspective-driven journalism. What do you make of that? Well, it's <laughs> sort of wishy-washy to me. It's advocacy journalism. It's commentary. It's European-style advocacy journalism. And the fact that someone like Cuomo was called an anchor, I mean, that's a long, long way from Walter Cronkite, whatever you thought of the views of Walter Cronkite. But, you know, que sera, sera. I mean, that's, that's the kind of language that, by the, like I said, by the time it gets out into Twitter and social media, those distinctions just are almost gone, period, for millions of Americans. So what do you think the impact of this Supreme Court ruling could be on religious colleges and universities and oh. public funding? Yeah, it's really interesting. The key is how, if the court chooses to address a question that church-state folks have been arguing about for years, and that is, why is it suddenly okay to give loans, and even in some cases make religious schools, liberal and conservative, I keep wanting to stress that, there are liberal religious schools and there are liberal conservative schools. Why is it suddenly okay to do that when a student turns 18 years old, but it's not okay to do that K through 12? Where in the Constitution does it suddenly say, thou shalt not give any loans or tax breaks to students and their professional teachers between kindergarten and 12th grade, but then, lo and behold, it's perfectly okay to do that when they are attending a liberal or conservative religious college. What's magic about the difference between 12th grade and what today functions as 13th grade. So that's another thing I think our listeners should look for in the coverage. Let me give them a couple of other things here real quick that I think they should look for. I think it's going to be interesting if any of the stories actually tell us what schools have been approved by Maine and what schools have not been approved. Have there been any actual decisions along those lines? And if so, what are the facts about that? I would also note that they should look for examples of specifically religious heritage schools on the left and religious heritage schools on the right and see if they're treated differently. That might show up in Jewish private education. It might show up these days in what amounts to Catholic higher education, or what I said earlier, is an Episcopal school acceptable to the state government, but a traditional Catholic school is not. I also would 
urge our listeners to pay attention to what different types of Baptists have to say and look for voices that come out of Baptist heritage, like the Baptist Joint Committee, a group that is now identified primarily on the left, and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, a group that is now primarily on the cultural right, although it has defended the freedoms, First Amendment freedoms, for a lot of folks that don't fit that kind of a caricature. So that's another thing that people can look for. If you see Baptist quoted, how are these Baptists labeled and identified? Is someone tied to Americans United, a group that has some interesting religious connections in the past of its own, or the Baptist Joint Committee, which is kind of now the Baptist left culturally and politically, are they described different from people at Alliance for the Defense of Freedom, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, etc.? Once again, framing and labeling is what our listeners need to be looking for. And sometimes back in the days of newspapers or printouts, if I'm analyzing something, I'll actually grab a yellow highlighter pen and start marking stuff. Just mark the identification. The technical term in journalism is attributions. Mark the attribution clauses and then go back and contrast them. Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at GetReligion.org.